0: He kō nā eipurangi tēnei, nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa.
1: Kia ora, ko William Rayaho, Welcome to Black Sheep. It was Saturday morning in Auckland, December 7th, 1963. Bassett Road, Remuera. The weather had been sunny and hot all week. Kids were playing in their yards men were washing their cars. Women were packing up picnic hampers for trips to the beach. Eric Lewis drove past them on his way to number 115. He was there to collect the rent. His tenants had moved into the house about a week and a half ago, a couple of guys in their mid-twenties or thirties, Kevin Spate and George Walker. Eric walked past the letterbox. He noticed it was stuffed with a couple of days' worth of newspapers. He frowned and kept walking towards the door. Bottles of milk were sitting on the porch that curdled in the summer sun. Had his tenants gone off on holiday and forgotten to tell anyone? Nobody answered the door. Eric shrugged and pulled out his key. The smell hit him first. The whole place reeked. He got a sinking feeling in the pit of his stomach. Eric walked inside. The smell got stronger as he neared the bedroom. He opened the door.
0: found in the front bedroom horrified him. It was one body of a deceased male on the bed and one body of a deceased male on the floor, and it
1: looked like both of them had been shot. Within a few hours, Bassett Road was swarming with police. They were shocked at what they'd
0: seen because... You know, a murder, even a, um, a murder was, was a rarity. A murder made a front page back back then. Um, but, you know, a double murder in 1963 was, was something pretty big.
1: Even more shocking was how these men had died. They'd both been shot multiple times at close range. Police collected six bullets from the bedroom and handed them over to Dr Donald Nelson, a firearms expert at the Department of Scientific and Industrial Research, the DSIR. Doctor Nelson looked at those bullets, then called a meeting with the detectives. He announced those bullets had been fired from a .45 caliber submachine gun.
0: You know, you could have dropped a pin on the floor. That you know, it, it, one of the te- detectives I talked to, um, Peter Faulkner, said, "You know, that that just came as a, came out of the blue. It was they didn't think that there was a you know there was a, a machine gun." In New Zealand at that time, so it
1: was it was a huge shock. Because I mean, the picture it immediately brings up is like get those those movies, those like old Chicago gangster movies with people with Tommy guns. Go in, go in. Give me that to again, Sam. Yeah. Like it must have been incredibly alarming. Yeah, and the truth
0: newspaper didn't help things there. You know, when they um, reported on the murder, the, the, the well-known uh, front page was Chicago comes to Auckland, you know, and it conveyed a, a story of, of, these, of these two criminals that were mowing down
1: in a hail of bullets. This is Scott Bainbridge, by the way. He's probably New Zealand's most famous true crime author. One of his books is New Zealand's Gangster Killings, The Bassett Road Machine Gun Murders. As Scott was just saying, the media's initial reporting of this story was pretty overhyped. There was no hail of gunfire, just six shots. And the weapon wasn't the infamous Tommy gun beloved by American gangsters and Hollywood filmmakers. It was a rising submachine gun, a much lighter and more unreliable weapon. It had been made for US Marines in World War II, but apparently they were so unreliable they were often dumped at sea.
0: Whether or not the killer had intended on on using it to spray the room full of bullets, um, it was determined that um, that particular gun was faulty and it was
1: jammed on single shot, hence only six bullets. But that was cold comfort for the police, especially once they identified the victims. Kevin Spate was
0: the the one who actually had the um, tenancy on the house. He wasn't really... He wasn't known by any of the police, but the the deceased man on the floor, George Walker, was well known to police, and and he had a um a, his nickname was Knucklehead, um you know he was involved with with crimes, so they you know they knew that it wasn't just a random killing.
1: George Knucklehead Walker apparently got his nickname because he liked to headbutt people in bar fights. He was notorious as a mob enforcer, dodgy bookkeeper, and horse doper, well known in Auckland's criminal underworld. The fact he'd been shot alongside Kevin Spate suggested these murders were linked to some other kind of crime. That suspicion was confirmed as soon as police searched the house. 24 beer glasses were lined up on the table. There was a large industrial fridge filled with 36 bottles and cans of beer. Another 138 empties were lined up outside the back door. To police, this could only mean one thing. 115 Bassett Road was an illegal beer house. Remember, we're back in the 1960s, and in those days New Zealand's bars couldn't serve alcohol after 6pm. It led to something called the six o'clock swill where men swarmed into bars and downed as much booze as they could before closing time. It was a weird semi-prohibition era of New Zealand history and just like the prohibition in the United States, it was a big opportunity for crime. Illegal bars cropped up all over Aotearoa. They were run out of ordinary houses with booze bought covertly from hotels and sold at a massive markup. These places went by a bunch of different names sly grogs, beer houses, grog dens. A lot of their customers were sailors and other workers who often couldn't finish work in time for six o'clock closing. But beer houses also acted as hubs for the criminal underworld. It was at these places
0: that a lot of the crooks could, you know, they had the safety and the security of being able to plan uh, robberies or or burglaries with like-minded people and, you know, without the
1: fear of being caught. Scott Bainbridge actually argues the beer houses marked the beginning of organised crime in New Zealand.
0: I know that uh, there's a, a saying that, you know, organised crime sort of didn't really come to the fore until about the 1970s, but in the book The Bassett Road Machine Gun Murders, I say that it Organised crime had had its genesis or its roots back in the fifties because um, a lot of these crooks they had preferred beer houses that they would hang out at and they were quite loyal to those beer houses and so and with each beer house um, the the proprietor was um, in
1: cahoots with a with a madam and so that you know they provided prostitutes. In fact, one of those madams was Flora McKenzie, who we met in the last episode of Black Sheep. This is the same era where she was getting super famous as the operator of the Ring Terrace brothel. The police knew all about these illegal beer houses. They'd raid them now and again, but mostly it was a live and let live kind of situation. And, you know, look, if there was any ever any crime
0: committed over the weekend, like a safe blow, the police generally rang up all the proprietors
1: of all the beer houses to say, hey, look, who was spinning up? But the Bassett Road murders were far more serious than anything the police had dealt with before at a beer house. For all they knew, this could be the beginning of a full-on gang turf war, the kind of horrific violence which had made cities like Chicago infamous in the Prohibition era of the 1920s. The image of 1920s Chicago loomed over a lot of Auckland crime in the 1950s and 60s. Lots of Kiwi criminals deliberately styled themselves after the gangsters they saw in Hollywood movies or read about in books. A lot of these guys were just um, fixated on
0: those gangster type, you know, Jimmy Cagney, George Raft movies. Good
1: morning, gentlemen. Nice day for murder. Where's Frazier? Where's that hundred grand? You think we're going to pay off, huh? Certainly. I don't get that dough in three minutes. The is going to be splashed all over the best hideout in town.
0: In fact, um, Pooch Quintal, who was um, one of the chaps I talked to, said that a lot of the crooks would go out and buy the Italian suits and the Trilby hats. You know, walk around
1: acting the big man, you know, because they admired George Raft movies. The crimes linked to these wannabe New Zealand gangsters weren't all that serious. Mostly petty theft or safe-cracking, not much armed robbery or anything like that. But now Auckland's gangsters had graduated from low-key nuisances to cold-blooded murderers. The police got their first break three days after the bodies were discovered, and it came from none other than Robert Muldoon. By 1975, Muldoon would be Prime Minister of New Zealand, but in December '63, he'd just finished his first term as an MP and had recently been re-elected to represent the Tamaki electorate. Muldoon turned up at the police station with a young man who claimed to have some information about the murders on Bassett Road.
0: He was the type of um, MP that constituents could freely, freely go to if they had any concerns, and he made himself available at all times back then. Um, he was approached by this, this man who was working as a chef at a small restaurant at the bottom of Queen Street, sort of those type of restaurants that sold chicken in a
1: basket. This chef told Muldoon that he'd been working at the restaurant one night when he ran into an old acquaintance. And he was um, out the back um, having a break,
0: and he saw this chap walk down the street and recognised him from doing
1: time in, in Borstal uh, many, many years earlier. Borstal, by the way, was the old youth prison system. A lot of the people we're going to meet in this story got to know each other when they formed gangs inside Borstal in their teens. Often the gangs were, were
0: arranged uh, between uh, prisoners, you know, really who just, you know, needed that sort of protection from. Being targeted by not only the
1: um, their fellow criminals, but also the um, some of the guards. Anyway, where were we? Oh yeah, Muldoon. So this chef met with Muldoon, and he told him he'd run into an old friend from Borstal, a guy called John Gillies. Who had come up from the South Island, and had only been in Auckland a couple of weeks
0: himself, and um, I guess he didn't know anybody, and, and so he started coming into the... To the restaurant every night, and and um, not long, well, a couple of days after the the Bassett Road murders, um, he came in and he was reasonably drunk, and he had basically admitted that he knew, you know, what went on with the Bassett
1: Road murders. According to this chef, Gilly said something like this: "The heat's going to be on in this town in two or three days' time." One general sent another general a telegram.
0: Grenades on the way. Close up. So, the other general got machine gunned.
1: (laughs) At this point in the chef's story, the detectives must have perked up their ears. The fact the Bassett Road murders were carried out with a machine gun was public knowledge. But what wasn't public was that police had found two hand grenades at the property. They were both deactivated, and one was missing its pin. The fact John Gillies mentioned a hand grenade suggested he wasn't just spinning a yarn. According to the chef, Gillies was anxious to tell more of the story. He claimed he was actually in the room when the murders happened. One of these mugs was lying on the floor, and the other bastard said,
0: I'll write you a
1: check. (laughs) I asked for the dough, and then my mate said, Ah, they have us mugged. So he gave them a burst. According to the chef, Gillies went on to say he pulled out the pin of a hand grenade he found on the mantelpiece, but discovered it was a dud. Presumably, he threw it into the bedroom to try and destroy evidence of the murder. He then stole a bit of cash from a bedside table and left. He chucked his gun over the side of the Auckland Harbour Bridge. All of a sudden, the police had a suspect. John Frederick Gillies. It also sounded like their suspicions about a gang turf war were well-founded. All that about one general talking tough to another general sounded pretty ominous. But there were still a lot of unknowns. For one thing, Gillies mentioned he had a mate in the room with him, but didn't give a name. Also, John Gillies wasn't someone the Auckland Police had dealt with before. He wasn't well known among their informants either.
0: He knew a handful of people um, in Auckland and from from his Borstal days, but he had um, he was a he'd been born in Napier and, but he'd spent a lot of his time um, his early adulthood in the South Island and then he went to Australia where he very quickly got involved with some robberies and spent a lot of time in Pentridge prison uh, in, in fact he served a reasonably lengthy term in Pentridge prison and was released and, and got booted out of Australia and came back to New Zealand and it um, uh, made himself an enemy of a couple of people in Greymouth which is where he was living and so he, he shifted up north moved to Auckland. And um, as I say, he, because he'd spent a lot of time in Australia and in the South Island, he knew virtually nobody but had you know, connected with some people
1: that he had been in a, in a gang at Borstal with years earlier. The police had another breakthrough a few days later some of their informants suggested they get in touch with a guy called Craig Curtis. Craig
0: Curtis was a, um, a young man around town. Um, his, he was the heir to the Litchfield Shirts, so his, his parents had started the Litchfield Shirts in the North Shore. So Craig was a um, very handsome young guy, and you know, he had a nice vehicle. Um, he, he liked the high life and associating
1: with people on the periphery of, of crime. Craig Curtis was also into drugs, mostly cannabis and pep pills both of which were pretty new in 1960s New Zealand. Curtis used his connections with the criminal scene to buy weed and supply it to other rich mates. He was also a keen gun collector. A police informant said that a while back, Curtis had boasted about buying a rising submachine gun which had been smuggled into the country. The exact same gun used at Bassett Road. What's more, this informant said Curtis had been acting scared recently – even talking about fleeing the country. At first, Curtis refused to talk, but after they raided his parents' house, he agreed to an interview. And he brought along another guy, a low-level criminal called Bryce Peterson. They
0: only knew each other because they would frequent the same beer house, and they both discovered a, a mutual love of jazz music and art. So that was their bond there. Now, Craig was a collector of antique Weapons uh, and had a had amassed a, a, quite a nice array of rare guns. He was approached by by Bryce and um, who said, "Look, I've got a mate who who's after a a submachine gun or or a gun. Um, you know, would you be able to lend him one or show him one?" And so there was a meeting that was that arranged um, somewhere secluded on the North Shore.
1: There were three men at this meeting on the North Shore. Craig Curtis, Bryce Peterson, and the guy who wanted the gun. You guessed it, John Gillies. This is another Borstal connection, just by the way. Peterson had been in a gang with Gillies in Borstal. He said Gillies approached him one night, saying he'd been in a fight with a man called Barry Shaw and needed a gun for self-defence. Curtis agreed to hand it over, but as the meeting went on he got more and more nervous. Gillies was asking for details about how it worked, demanding he show him how to load and fire it.
0: Listen, man, if you had to use that, please don't bring it back. I don't want to see it again if it's got to be used.
1: Don't worry about it, pal. Curtis left. Gillies and Peterson got back in their car. Now Peterson was getting anxious too. He suggested, why not just drive past Barry Shaw's place and wave the gun at him out the window? That'd be enough to scare him off. No need to actually shoot the guy. Don't worry about it. I
0: know what I'm doing.
1: The following night, Peterson got a phone call. It was Gillies. He sounded drunk or stoned.
0: Can you get me another gun?
1: Are you going to start a rebellion or something?
0: Well, there's two gone, and the other gun is in 50 fathoms of water.
1: Peterson claimed he was half asleep and didn't understand what Gillies was talking about. But a few days later, when the bodies were found, he saw the headlines. Two men found dead in-house... Chicago comes to New Zealand. So now we've got Gillies, someone's heard him talking about the murders, suggesting he might be involved. We've got a couple of guys who said they gave him exactly the kind of gun that the police think was used in the murder. What they don't have yet is anything connecting Gillies to the people who have been shot. No, that's right. And in fact, they
0: didn't know where, even how, you know, to get hold of Gillies. And all they had on him was a very, very old um, police photo from when he was arrested in Australia. So they really didn't know who they were looking for.
1: But the police did have a new lead. Gillies had told Peterson he needed a gun to deal with Barry Shaw. That wasn't one of the victims, but it was a name the police knew very well.
0: Every sly grog had their muscle man or the, or the security, and um, and for the sly grog in Anglesey Street, it was Barry Machine Gun Shaw or Barry
1: the Bruiser Shaw. That nickname, by the way, no relation to the Bassett Road killings. Barry Shaw got it because he used to be a rugby league player, and a newspaper had said he mowed down the opposition like a machine gun. Anyway the police headed around to Barry Shaw's beer house in Anglesey Street, Ponsonby. It had been set up earlier that year by a 62-year-old sailor called Jerry Wilby and a young tough guy called Ron Jorgensen. And it turned out Jorgensen also had a connection to John
0: Gillies. Jorgensen was a, um, a, a petty criminal as well, and he had done time and, and spent some time in Borstal, where he w- was in Gillies' gang in Borstal. So there was Gillies, Jorgensen... Bryce, and a couple of other chaps, and so uh, Gilly's kind of made himself welcome there because he at, at the Anglesey Street bear house because you know he had those connections.
1: So basically, at this point, all um, all evidence is, is is pointing that there's something about this crime that's linked to Anglesey Street. And another big bit of evidence is a telegram which Spate has sent to Anglesey Street. What's the story behind this telegram? Well, during
0: the initial investigation when the police were um, were calling in and raiding all of the bear houses, they, they did, um, as a matter of course, go into uh, the Anglesey Street Bear House, and amongst the paperwork they took, w- w- they found this telegram, and it was a, a taunting telegram from Kevin Spate to the actual proprietor of the Anglesey Street beer House, which was Jerry Wilby. It was basically tantamount to a threat that he was going to... Um, come and throw a grenade through the window um, and so that you know the focus from then went on to the
1: um, people that were at, at the Anglesey Street Beer House that night. The men at the Anglesey Street Beer House claimed they knew nothing about the shooting at Bassett Road. Even after the detectives told Barry Shaw the gun might have been meant for him he still said nothing. The detectives were stonewalled but they still had a thread to pull. According to Bryce Peterson, John Gillies needed the gun because he and Barry Shaw had gotten to a fight over a woman. So their next step was to interview the women linked to Anglesey Street. The first was 17-year-old Mary Dapira, girlfriend of Jerry Wilby. Jerry was a
0: 62-year-old um, merchant seaman um, who exerted a lot of influence, and in fact, he was, you know, the mentor to a lot of these young seamen such as Ron Jorgensen, um, you know, he was a very charismatic guy, very quiet but very charismatic, and um, and he was married with, with kids, but um, he also um, liked the young girls and basically paid for Mary's time and company. So there was an expectation there that um, while Jerry was at sea, Mary could do whatever she liked, but for, for the time that he was back on shore, you know, that she was to be his and solely his, mainly for sexual purposes, but also, um, you know, in November when he and Jorgensen decided to start up the beer house venture, you know, there was an expectation there that she would be the hostess and and would, would pull her a weight around um you know, getting the beer, and um, so the police did interview her. Uh, they interviewed Mary, and she initially denied um, any knowledge, but they could tell that something about it really rattled her, and they felt even at that early stage that, you know, she was, wasn't letting on
1: exactly what she knew. By this point, the detectives were fairly confident John Gillies was the shooter and that the killings had some kind of link to the Anglesey Street beer house. But they still had a lot of questions. Gillies had told Peterson he planned to use the gun against Barry Shaw. So why was Shaw alive and two other men were dead? Plus there was still the mysterious second man, the mate who John Gillies said was in the room with him when the murder happened. Mary clearly knew something, but she wasn't talking. So the police decided to shake things up. They launched raids on all the major beer houses in Auckland.
0: the purpose for raiding all of the beer houses was really to put pressure back on on anglesey street you know police had an inkling that that there was some involvement there now um but by applying that kind of pressure and attention on the other beer houses it was thought that um, you know that the other beer houses would, you know, would 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 gang together and 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 put pressure on Anglesey Street, you know, just to get the heat off them, and that's exactly what happened. Um, there was a sort of a summit between you know, the beer house in Franklin Road and and the other one in Ponsonby, where they said, you know, um, it's coming up Christmas, we all want to make a lot of money, um, you know, the police are putting pressure on us, so you know, you really need to, um, you know, step up and and take the heat off us.
1: Yeah, the pressure is also on Gillies, who's been sort of under incredibly intensive surveillance by the police this whole time. Well, it did
0: take a while for police to work out where he was, but they did interview Bryce Peterson a couple of times, and Bryce was able to put them in in the right direction um so Gillies was moving between flats quite regularly, but you know he he had this quiet menacing you know persona and You know, the people were—you know—they took him in. Some of them actually didn't even know he was connected to the Bassett
1: Road murders, but they knew that something was wrong. The pressure was clearly getting to Gillies. He was drinking heavily, and when he was drunk, he'd start telling his hosts details about the shooting. He even related a conversation he had with the two victims in their final moments. I suppose you know why I'm here. Why are you here? I've been offered money
0: to knock you off Hurry up and get it over with No, wait Maybe this guy can offer me more not to I haven't got any money but but I could write you a cheque
1: He talked about how he shot Kevin Spate first then offered George Walker a cigarette before killing him too Gillies' hosts eventually got so scared they effectively gave him up to the police, who began tailing him 24 7. In the meantime, police were gathering information about John Gillies, and it was painting a disturbing picture. He had a long rap sheet for assault and theft in the South Island in Australia, and Australia had been known to threaten people with a gun. In fact, one night, working on a cargo ship, he'd got drunk and started shooting at his crewmates. Luckily, he was restrained before anyone was hurt. The police had come to a similar conclusion to the people Gillies was staying with. John Gillies was a very dangerous character.
0: He was beaten up in prison from all accounts um you know i I heard that he was the type of guy that you know he'd just sit there and take it and not say or do anything when he did get um agitated, which was um Reasonably regularly, he would be seen frothing at the mouth, um, and you know people people um, you know would step aside. But um, you know, at the time he moved to Auckland, um, people had no you know his his old friends had no idea, really had no idea.
1: Investigations kept rolling. Police tracked down another woman linked to Anglesey Street. Barry Shaw's girlfriend, a 21-year-old sex worker who called herself Lola. On Christmas Eve, detectives visited her flat. Lola was clearly scared to talk to the police. Detectives tried to convince her she could be protected. But right as they were talking, the phone rang. It was Barry Shaw, and he was furious. Lola hung up and then explained to the cops that this was just the latest in a string of threatening phone calls from Shaw, Ron Jorgensen, and others linked to the Anglesey Street beer house. She'd seen cars parked outside her flat and believed she was under constant surveillance. But eventually, detectives convinced her to talk. It all started on December 3rd, the day before the shooting. Lola got a phone call from Barry Shaw. He was drunk and angry. The two had been dating for a while, but things had gone downhill recently. Their phone call turned into an argument and Shaw hung up on her. Thirty minutes later, he turned up at her front door and forced his way inside. Lola was terrified. She ran out of the house to a phone booth, called up a taxi and headed to Anglesey Street. She got there half an hour before midnight. Most of the punters had gone home, but Ron Jorgensen was still there. So was John Gillies and Mary Darperda.
0: Gillies was acting, you know, he overheard the conversation. He was acting the big tough guy, and so he said he'd, go, you know, go and deal to Barry. And so Gillies followed Lola back to her house. And when Barry came in, I think Gillies got the fright of his life because he probably didn't realise how big and sort of powerful Barry was. And the the pair had a had a big fight. <coughs> And um, Gillies got really dealt to. And so, you know, he went away and he vowed that he would take his revenge on, on Barry.
1: Both Barry Shaw and John Gillies left Lola's flat. But Gillies came back later that night. He'd been to meet Bryce Peterson and Craig Curtis. He showed Lola the machine gun he'd got from them and asked to borrow Lola's suitcase to hide it in. So now the detectives had another piece of their puzzle. They knew why Gillies had got the submachine gun. He'd been beaten up by Barry Shaw, and he was looking for revenge. But it still didn't explain why Kevin Spate and George Walker were dead, and Barry Shaw was still alive. They didn't know it, but right at that moment, the police already had the final bit of evidence they needed to solve that mystery. Next time on Black Sheep, the case of the Bassett Road machine gun murders breaks wide open. Very special thanks to Scott Bainbridge. His book is New Zealand's Gangster Killings, The Bassett Road Machine Gun Murders. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, and if you want to help more people find out about Black Sheep, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Also, don't forget to check out RNZ's other great podcasts. If you're looking for a political fix, try Caucus. It comes out every Thursday and gives some really good analysis on the upcoming election. Black Sheep is written and presented by me, William Ray. Our executive producer is Tim Watkin and our sound engineer is Phil Benge. Our voice actors are Duncan Smith, Chris Reid and Colin Peacock.